With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. CrimeCon this past weekend in Las Vegas was incredible. I got to meet some of the best. I got to learn from some of the best. It was really fun for me to be able to see such a huge shift in focus onto victims and their families. And if you haven't noticed, that's what I started this whole podcast for to begin with, because I truly care about these victims. I stay up late at night thinking about them. Like, it is something I'm very passionate about. So I loved that mindset around CrimeCon. Now, I got one review this week that was actually super nice, but there was a little critique in it. And I wanted to explain it really quick, just in case anyone else was confused. Like I said, I appreciate the review. It was actually a nice review. But they did just say that I only ever quote one source. So... If you're saying like in the episode, I only quote a source, I usually don't quote verbally in an episode unless I'm taking a direct quote from a source or talking about that source specifically. But I do always have all my sources in the show notes. So even if you don't hear me source someone in the episode verbally, they still may be a source. All you have to do is click on the description of this episode and you will always see at least five or more sources that I have used for each episode. Now, I also thought this person might mean that in every episode or in many of my episodes, I use the same source. And I do. So if a local reporter that's here that I trust does do a piece on an episode I'm covering, I really do try to use him. So that is Nate Eaton with East Idaho News. And you might hear me talk about him a lot. Like I said, because I enjoy supporting someone local that I trust is putting out accurate information. And one other little critique that that review gave me was that sometimes there might be a problem with the sound, but maybe it's their phone, which no, they are 100% spitting facts because if you haven't been listening from the beginning and you go back and listen yes sound was so much harder I've been able to get mine pretty good but me and my mom record remotely so we're not actually together and getting her audio to be top notch has been a challenge it's definitely a lot better now but soon it's going to be perfect so keep your eye out for that and with all of this are you ready for today's case 
Well, guys, I am sad to report that my mom is not here with me today. We actually tried to record this together, but my computer is literally ancient. It's 10 years old. I'm going to kill it. It is so slow. It sucks. It can't do anything. And my co-host on my other podcast can attest because I was having tons of problems with it earlier this week, and we had to super bad improvise how we were going to interview our guest. And like I said, I record with my mom remotely. We are not in the same location or state. So we were not able to make it work when we were supposed to record together. And now she has to work when I'm recording this. So this sucks and we will miss her. But this is a very interesting case that needs a lot of attention. So I'm excited to get into it with you. And I wanted to start this episode first by talking about an update in a case we actually covered. So my dad sent this to me this morning. And you guys might remember the case where we covered all the gay hate crimes over in Australia. This was way back in episode five. Now, in those deaths was the murder of Scott Johnson. And we talked about him in the end of our episode. And he was murdered by an Australian man by the name of Scott White. So they're both named Scott, Scott Johnson, Scott White. Johnson, good guy. White, bad guy. And Scott White was arrested in 2020. I do believe I talked about that in the episode as well, but how nothing had come of it. Nothing was going on, even though he was arrested. Well, Finally, in January of 2022, he was convicted and charged with the crime. And he cited homophobia as his motivation for the reason he pushed Scott Johnson, an American man, off a cliff simply for being gay. There was an article just posted about it today on CBS News in Utah. My dad was scrolling through the news. He saw it. He remembered we covered Scott's case and he sent it to me. I was really excited to hear this, that at least one family out of all those families was seeing their son's killer be put away. Now, for our episode today, we all know I went to CrimeCon this past weekend, which, which was in Las Vegas. It was incredible. Like I said, tons of focus on victims and their families. And one session I attended is what I'm going to talk about today because it's something that needs attention. It's something that the panel during that session asked us in America to bring attention to. And it's absolutely mind-blowing what was allowed to happen not only in Ireland, but between Ireland and America as well. That session was hosted by Angeline Hartman, who hosts the podcast Inside Crime. And with her were survivors of the home we will be talking about, Michael Brine and Kathy Belisi. With Kathy was her husband, Andrew, who had helped her do a ton of research into just what happened. After the session, I downloaded the app Topic, which is a streaming app, and they have a three-part documentary series titled The Missing Children. I watched that along with my notes from the session at CrimeCon to bring you this story and make you aware of one of the largest trafficking scams I have ever heard of, and they need your help. I was actually able to connect with Michael, one of the survivors there, and we briefly spoke about him coming on the podcast. I would love to expand on this story with extra episodes by firsthand accounts from these survivors. 
So keep your eye out for that as I contact Michael. Now we're going over to Galloway, Ireland. Over there, it's full of stone walls and green fields. And if you drive just 25 kilometers away, you'll come across the small town of Tuam, T-U-A-M, like Guam, but with a T. And although this town was small, there was a large stone building that you just couldn't miss. This building that stood out. There were these large stone buildings all over the country of Ireland and everyone who lives near them or who had to pass them knew what they were, but they really tried to keep their distance because inside those stone walls were people and children that they just did not want to engage with. These buildings were mother and baby homes. I had never heard of this until now, until I came across this story at CrimeCon. A mother and baby home was a home run by Catholic nuns to take in unwed mothers and help them deliver their babies and take care of those babies. These homes were funded by the government of Ireland, given money and grants to operate. From 1922 through 1998, 57,000 children had passed through mother and baby homes just like the one sitting there in Tuam. So these homes, they were designed for unwed mothers because at this time, having a baby when you were not a married woman was a huge sin and highly frowned upon by the Catholic Church. One person who participated in the documentary said that during this time in Ireland, having sex before marriage was almost looked upon worse than murder. The children born to these mothers were looked at as illegitimate children and described as being marked for life. The purpose of these homes was to take mothers in and hide the fact that Catholic women were in fact getting pregnant outside of marriage. Who knew? According to this documentary, it seems that Ireland really prided itself once it dis- like once it established independence, they prided themselves on being a largely Catholic country. And at the time that these mother and baby homes were operating, birth control wasn't legal, abortions were not legal, and there was zero welfare for a woman who got pregnant before marriage. This left the women of Ireland without many sources for their pregnancy, their births, or raising their children. Because more likely than not, their families would also completely cut them off after finding out about these pregnancies. So this is why these homes are in place to take care of the women and children that everyone else was turning their back on. And the home that was in Tuam was called the Bon Secours Mother and Baby Home. This home was not good, regardless of the fact that they have this front. They're taking in unwed mothers and claiming to help them with their babies. But these women were often forced to stay for one year after their birth. They'd stay in the home and work off their debt that they owed the home for helping them. And the women who had babies here were mostly all separated permanently from their children. They were either told that their baby died and that they had to leave, or they were forced to give their babies up for adoption. And that's all they really knew. They didn't have the resources to fight for the rights of their children or the rights of themselves. 
And when the nuns take their babies from them, they were just gone. And these young mothers could do nothing about it. I mean, they were literally physically locking up these unwed pregnant women to hide the fact that they were pregnant without a husband. It didn't matter if this was a woman who got pregnant by the love of her life and someone who would take care of her. If they were married, it was no option. No, if they were not married, not if they were. If they were married, they could probably have as many babies as they wanted. If they were not married, it was no option to have this baby, even if the dad wanted to be involved. It didn't matter if this was a woman or a girl who was raped and ended up pregnant. They were still blamed for the pregnancy and they were still sent to this home. It was said in the documentary that unwed mothers brought so much shame to the Catholic Church, to their families, to Ireland, that this is why the mother and baby homes were established all over Ireland. You'll see as we go through this episode that it's ironic because the church views life as sacred, yet these living and breathing and beautiful children are being treated horribly because their mom didn't have a husband when she birthed them. So PJ Harvey was born in 1951 and he is a survivor of the Bon Secours mother and baby home. His mom was an unwed woman who got pregnant and when someone who knew her found out, they decided that the best option would be to let her priest know. Not the best option because he comes and he takes care of it by taking her to the Bon Secours home, telling the nuns to keep her inside and not let her be seen. And when her baby is born, he actually wants her sent to jail. So that gives you a sliver of insight into the mindset around these women and their children. Now, many, many years down the road, there is this woman named Catherine Corliss, and she grew up with these children. She actually remembers them from behind the wall where they lived in the mother and baby homes. Some of these kids even came to school with her. So not only were unwed mothers and their babies brought into this home, kids were also cared for here that were orphaned or fostered. And Catherine was always told in school that these kids were different. And the quote-unquote regular kids of the school were not allowed to mix with the children living in this home. Catherine never really knew what that home was all about. As she grew up, she just assumed it was an orphanage. But remember, this is a small town. And as she grew older, it connected in her brain that she didn't know whatever happened to all of those kids living in the Bon Secours mother and baby home. The home operated from the 1920s to about the 1960s, but it seems that it continued to be some sort of home owned by the Bon Secours, which I believe is like a segment of the Catholic Church. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's just what I'm getting from my understanding. Now, because I think this because in the 1970s, there were still kids living there. So maybe instead of taking in mothers and their newborns after 1960-ish when they closed down, they're still doing orphanage and foster work, I think. So Catherine, the one who's coming to this awareness that she never knew what happened to the kids in the Bon Secours home, 
she decides she's going to start looking into the history of her own hometown. She is a local historian and had lived there in Tuam for her whole life. And as Catherine starts digging into the history of the Bon Secours mother and baby home, she is talking with other residents here in Tuam. And over and over again, it's hinted to her that there were children buried in the ground on that property. And this is alarming, but it has to be just a rumor, right? So she keeps digging. She even tries to get in touch with some of the nuns, but they want nothing to do with her research. And then Catherine gets in touch with a man who lived at that home in the 70s, just about a decade after the mother and baby home was closed. During the 70s when he was a child, he's running around the property of the Bon Secours home with another child living there. These two boys are just roughhousing and messing around when they jump off a little fence onto a part of the ground, and it doesn't feel right underneath their feet. So they kind of move some stuff around to find that just below the ground, there's this concrete slab, and they decide they want to explore. So after moving the concrete slab and jumping down into what looks like a fun little man-made cave, there was a panic that rushes through them because what they jumped onto was a pile of human bones, little bones that seemed to belong to a bunch of babies. And one of these boys, now a man when this documentary is aired, explains that he wouldn't have known these were human bones if he didn't see all the little skulls. This obviously freaks the boys out. So they rush as fast as they can to let those in charge of the home know what they just discovered. It's then that a priest is brought in and everyone determines, you know what, this must be the remains of children from the famine. Yeah, that's it. So the priest gives a little prayer. He prays over the land and then this concrete enclosure is buried and it's forgotten. Housing is then built all around it and everyone moves on with their lives until Catherine is digging all these years later into the history and comes across this man's story and his discovery, which ties right back into what everyone else was telling her, that there may be a mass grave of children buried there on the property. People were giving Catherine maps of the home, and while she looks at them, she notices that there is a large sewage tank buried in the same area that those boys found the skulls back in the 70s. This leads her to believe that there is in fact some sort of grave there. Could there be children discarded in that sewer tank? So Catherine decides to go to the record office there in Tuam. She discovers death records for 796 children and she wants the names of these children. So she obtains the records, but one thing is really odd. There are no burial records. Someone can't just die and be put wherever. Like that is the law. You must have burial records following a death certificate. So 796 children have death certificates, but no burial records. Weird. So with that list of names for the 796 dead children, Catherine starts her own search. She goes to the graveyard there in Tuam 
It's a Catholic graveyard literally just across the street from the Bon Secours home. And she checks the name of each of the headstones, trying to match any names to the list of names she has. But there's none. So she goes to the surrounding areas, other towns and cities, and she checks their graveyards. But she can never, ever match a burial site to one of the children listed as having legally died in the Bon Secours mother and baby home. Something is completely wrong here. Catherine can feel it in her gut, and she knows she needs the story public. So she starts working with Alison O'Reilly, a journalist there in Ireland, who on May 25th, 2014, breaks the shocking story of a possible mass grave on the site of the former Bon Secours mother and baby home. And it's alluded that this mass grave contains the remains of babies from the time the home was operating. Now, those who read this news and who live there are absolutely mortified, as you should be. So Allison thinks there will be some, for sure, immediate action by the Irish police. They're going to send forensics in. They're going to be full steam ahead in finding out what happened to almost 800 children who are unaccounted for. But that's not how it goes. In fact, there is no criminal investigation and government officials just start disputing that there aren't any children buried on that property. Like, that's not possible. Someone in the documentary says, quote, When babies can't be accounted for, we know there is a lie behind us. Therefore, you can only assume that the final situation is likely to be far worse than what we already know. End quote. And then the following Monday, after this story goes public, it's sister Mary Ryan, who is the leader of the Bon Secours, that calls Catherine to ask her what all this media attention is about. Why is the media bombarding us? Like, what did you say? And Catherine replies by telling Sister Mary, um, it's about the burials. You didn't know about them? And of course, Sister Mary denies knowing anything about this as she explains that there are two elderly nuns still there at the home who are very upset by the article, but that they're way too er elderly to talk about what they remember from that time. I mean, all of this is pretty unbelievable, right? That a home dedicated to taking care of mothers and babies would then be the site of a mass grave. So of course, it's easy for people to brush it off. Even if they were shocked by what they read, they could just be like, oh, that's probably not true. And Kaylin Hogan, who worked as a reporter for the Washington Post, she specifically remembers hearing this story. And she also heard it was a big hoax and that Catherine's research was shoddy at best. It's also that same year in 2014 when Terry Prone, who represented the Bon Secours, sent an email to this very documentary that I watched. It was in the process of being made, and he said, quote, If you come here, you will find no mass grave. You will find children were not buried in this way, end quote. So, okay, great. Wouldn't this actually be amazing if it was a hoax, if it wasn't real? But you're listening to a true crime podcast, so you've got to know that that's just not the case. 
Now, Fergus Finlay, he's a former advisor to the Irish government, and he explains in a documentary in that documentary that he worked with the nuns a lot and they kept very meticulous records. He truly thinks they know what happened. He just wonders why they won't tell us. He assumes the secrets are because there is so much more to be discovered in this tragedy. So then we come to Annette McKay. She was devastated when this article hits the news. It hit her like a ton of bricks because her little sister was actually a baby. And then we come to Annette McKay. She was devastated by this article. It had hit her like a ton of bricks because her sister was a baby born in the Bon Secours mother and baby home there in Tuam. Annette remembers her mom as gorgeous and full of life, but she had a hard history. At 12 years old, she was sentenced for the crime of being destitute after her mom dies. Being sentenced for being destitute from what I gathered pretty much means that you've been charged for poverty, for being poor, maybe for stealing food because you're starving. So I'm assuming her mom like wasn't being Annette's mom wasn't being taken care of after her own mom dies, which maybe she didn't have anyone else. And then she gets charged with it and sentenced for this crime. That that's crazy to me. Well, while she's serving her sentence, she suffers horrifically. She's being stabbed and she's raped, which results in a pregnancy. And that's why she goes to this mother and baby home and stays there for about six months after she delivers little Mary Margaret. But when six months hits, she's all of a sudden told that her baby's dead and since her baby has died, she's now being kicked out. All of this history mixed with that article published in 2014 gives a little shock to Mary Margaret's family. They have this bad feeling. All the time, they had just thought there was a tiny headstone somewhere with the name Mary Margaret stating that she died at six months old. But this article written by Allison about this mass grave put everything they thought they knew into a new perspective. The paper reads, quote, a mass grave beside a former home for unmarried mothers may contain the bodies of almost 800 babies. The Irish male on Sunday can reveal, end quote. So that last sentence means that on Sunday, the Irish male who posted this article will release the list of the 796 babies that could possibly be in that mass grave. And when that list is published and that goes through it, and there is a name, Mary Margaret O'Connor, dead at six months old. It's her sister. And in the documentary, I was able to pause it and see some other names. Bridget Quinn died at five months old. Mary Mulkerins died at five weeks. Kathleen Parkinson died at 10 months. Sheila Madeline Flynn died at three and a half months. Patrick Joseph Mahoney died at two months. Bridget Kearney died at seven months. Joseph Garrity died at three months. Annie Cohen died at 10 months. Martin Joseph, he died at three and a half months. Anthony Finnegan died at three months. Patrick Cody died at three months. And that is 
barely scratching the surface because there are 796 babies on that list. Were they all buried in this alleged mass grave? Or could there be another explanation? Annette did obtain Mary's death certificate, and it stated that she died of whooping cough, cardiac failure, and that this was a certified death that occurred on July 12, 1943. Annette asks, why were babies dying of treatable diseases? Why were babies dying of heart diseases? And she also found out that babies were dying of malnutrition. So everyone wants to know why. These Bon Secours nuns were not just nuns, they were also trained nurses. And there was a Bon Secours hospital. However, the people in the hospital were treated much better than those in the mother and baby homes. So after this allegation is made public via the article in 2014, nothing really happens. Like I said earlier, police deny this. The man representing Bon Secours denies this. And two years go by with nothing until October 1st, 2016, when there is finally a trial excavation. For this, a few different people are brought in. We have Dr. Linda G. Lynch, who is a human osteoarchaeologist. And that basically means she's an archaeologist and she's very specifically focused on human bones. Anyway, Dr. Linda is brought in to determine if human remains were present on the property of the former Bon Secours mother and baby home. And if they were, did these remains fit into the time period that the home was operating? We also have Dr. Nima McCullough. She's a forensic archaeologist, and she's brought on as the director of this trial excavation. And they also have Aiden Hart, who is a forensic archaeologist. I'm sure there are many more people on this team, but these three participated in that documentary, The Missing Children. Now, because this is a trial and not an actual full-blown excavation, they are only taking a sample off the site and assessing this sample. So when they start digging, they're just barely below the surface when they hit a lid of a stone structure. So they dig down to this structure and they take the lid off to see that this is a stone chamber and it consists of 20 individual compartments. And they know this is actually a structure that was used as a sewer tank in the 19th century. Now each chamber opening is very narrow, hard to get into, hard to get out of. They couldn't just jump down in there because they would be walking among the evidence they were collecting. So they have to identify if there are human remains by searching each chamber with cameras and taking hundreds and hundreds of photographs. It turns out that 18 out of those 20 chambers did contain human remains. They remove six samples of bones from this old sewer tank and all of the skeletal remains collected were very tiny ultimately determined to all along belong to children who died before they were 12 months old. The other informative thing they learned from this collection was that all of the remains were in very good condition. This meant that these remains could not have been buried somewhere else and then moved to this location for some reason. This proved that these babies were discarded into the sewer tank 
And it's very sad when one of the women in the documentary explains that those tight and narrow openings to the chambers, though they were narrow, there was also about a two meter drop into the chamber. So it's two meters deep. And she explains that they didn't just set these kids in there. They had to literally drop babies in. So now there is proof that Catherine was right about a mass grave. Now there can finally be a criminal investigation into this, right? Well, wrong. A few months go by, and on March 3rd, 2017, Ireland's parliament makes an announcement. It's Catherine Zappone talking. And at this time, at this point in time, she was the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs. She served in this position from 2016 to 2020. And she explains to the public that the trial excavation did reveal human remains in the chambers of a sewage system that traced back to the former Bon Secours mother and baby home, which had operated from 1925 to 1961. So now people are starting to go through the death certificates of the 796 babies to find out why they were dying at such outrageous rates. Baby after baby on these records would be dying of measles one after another, and then whooping cough all in a row one after another. It just didn't make sense to look at a list and 10 babies in a row die of measles and then the next 10 babies all die of whooping cough. The mortality rate was also sometimes over 50%. Babies aren't just dying at that rate when they're being taken care of. It's discovered that babies in this home and eventually the children who were orphaned here or fostered here were all being starved. Even some death certificates did state that a child died of starvation. Remember in the beginning how I said the moms were forced to work for about a year to pay off the debt they owed this mother and baby home? Well, because of this, babies had very poor conditions. None were really being cared for because their moms were separated from their newborn babies all day long, except when they're brought in to feed them. But were they even brought in and allowed to feed them enough? There are inspector records that people have been able to find that state the kids in these homes were pot-bellied, meaning they were suffering malnutrition. Kids were emaciated. And regardless of this inspector concern, nothing changes in the death rate and it continues to be extremely high. Anna Kerrigan is the sister of two of these missing Tuam children. And it was nine years ago that she starts looking into where they could be herself. She had two little brothers born there, one by the name of John and one by the name of William. And John, well, his story ties right in with those inspector records. John himself is literally recorded on an inspection form. His mom was actually forced to leave the home around the time he was a year old. And then one to two months later, He's described on this inspector form as a 13-month-old little boy who was miserable and emaciated with a ferocious appetite, a little boy who had no control over his bodily functions. So it's only months after his mom has to leave the home without him that he is recorded in the middle of starving to death. There are accounts of people who remember the babies in this home being starved. There there were kids who lived there who remember themselves being hungry at the night. 
and they said even if you cried out, no one cared. They still would not feed you. And then remember Burgess Finley. We talked about him in the beginning. He was a former advisor to the Irish government. And he explains in this documentary that the Bon Secours is actually a very wealthy organization. And they most definitely profited off running these homes. I mean, the state was paying for them to care for these children, yet we see that they are not. And why weren't they? Because the home had chickens and goats and gardens filled with food, vegetables, everything they needed. They literally had the means to feed these children on top of the grants they received from the state. But Fergus says that when they showed a child was hungry, when they showed them looking like they were cold and in need, they could actually get more money out of the government. And the more that comes out about this Bon Secours mother and baby home, the more people feel a pain in their stomach. All these children unaccounted for. All these children stripped illegally from their mothers. All these children dead from negligence. But regardless of the discovery of human remains, there are no answers. There's not even an answer to how many kids might have been discarded into the sewer. All, are all 796 children there? Because those that did this excavation described the chambers as not being overly filled with remains. Which if you have at least 800 children discarded in one area, you would think it would be filled. So it's at this point that the government announces it needs special legislation before a full excavation can take place to give the people the answers they are looking for. And that still hasn't happened. This article came out in 2014. The trial excavation happened in 2016. We are in 2022. They are doing nothing. But there's another reason that these 796 children may not have burial records. While some of them did likely die and were clearly discarded into that sewer tank, it seems that many of them were adopted illegally trafficked out of Ireland. And it's believed many of those deaths are actually falsified. Take Kerrigan's other brother, for example. We just talked about her brother, John, who was recorded in those inspector records. Well, William, there's only one explanation for what happened to him. It's a handwritten date stating that William died February 3rd, 1951. There is no death certificate. There is no medical certification for his death. There is no reason given. Just one nun's handwriting under death that reads the date. Kerrigan asks if she's supposed to just take that for what it is. She believes William was adopted out and likely doesn't even know where he came from. Patrick Naughton is a Tuam adoptee. He was born in 1954 and he didn't always know he was adopted. But when he was six or seven, he asks his mom and she tells him that, yes, honey, you are adopted, but it doesn't matter because you're our son and we love you so much. He was actually super sad to learn that he was adopted because he loved his adoptive parents so much, too. He truly wanted them to be his real parents. However, he was able to move past that sadness in childhood because he did have a great home and those parents did love him. 
It's not until much later in life, actually 14 years after his adoptive parents die, that he starts noticing something is off with him. He's always at work crying. He can't stop his tears from flowing. He was feeling so sad. And finally, one day, it smacks him in the face. Like, I'm sad because I don't know who I am. So he goes on the search for his biological parents, and he discovers that his mom was actually alive. He's able to get in touch with a social worker who goes to his mom, Christy. She lets her know that her son was looking for her. Soon, Patrick and his biological mom, Christy, are able to meet, and she explains to him that she never put him up for adoption. She never agreed to his adoption. And she cried out, letting him know that this is the truth, even if he doesn't believe her. But he does believe her. She goes on to say that every single morning she would go down to the area that the nuns kept the babies. She would grab Patrick, feed him, and spend as much time with him as she could. But on this particular morning, she heads downstairs to do just that. But she could not find him. She's looking everywhere and she's frantically running around when a nun walks into the room holding Patrick. Christy remembers this nun's squinty and cold eyes that shot her daggers when she asked, Is he okay? That's my baby. What's going on? Is he alright? But this nun says nothing. And instead, she just walks right by Christy and out of the home with Patrick, leaving Christy alone to never see her son again until this very moment that they are meeting. Patrick is sickened by the story, so he asks the social worker for the records from his adoption. But he's shocked when this woman, who was a seemingly nice lady up till this point, all of a sudden gets upset and she tells him he has no chance of ever getting those, not even if he goes to the highest courts. He's a little taken back, but like, okay... Patrick's adoptive parents, they're deceased, we know, but he believes they have no idea of the circumstances before they were able to adopt him. He hasn't been able to recover his adoption papers. He can't see if his mom signed this paper or not, or if her signature was forged even. But he does get discharge papers from the home, and he discovers that they were falsified, to look like he was six months old when he was adopted out. That was the law at the time. A baby had to be six months old in order to be adopted. But Christy remembers specifically that Patrick was only a few weeks old when the nuns stole him from her. There are multiple accounts of kids being forcibly adopted without the mother's permission. Sometime after that announcement in 2017, the Congregation of Sisters of Bon Secours say that the records were given to the Galloway Council after the home closed, and they state that all the info they held was shared with the Commission of Investigation. But this Commission of Investigation has come out and stated that it did not see any evidence that the religious ordains who ran the mother and baby homes made a profit from doing so. And so far, I guess they're saying they see no wrongdoing. But there's so much evidence. In 1950, there is a report saying that over 500 babies left Ireland for America. This article was tucked in the back of the newspaper and no one really took notice of it back then. 
This is one of the largest known trafficking schemes that has gone unrecorded. Yet it was this big open secret. Nuns and priests were seen by people holding kids, carrying them through the airport and sending them off literally to a different country. There was even news back then of soldiers and airmen coming into Ireland, getting babies, and then being able to leave with them. So at some point, Charles McQuaid, who is the Archbishop of Dublin, he's like, mm, no. These babies, he doesn't want them going into homes that are not Catholic. Which, like, not a good mindset there either, buddy. But he does try to put in some rules and procedures, which maybe could have possibly helped the situation to not go so unnoticed, but I don't really think it did. At first, the nuns, they don't want to follow these rules or procedures, but eventually they get on board. And the first requirement is that a mom must sign a surrender document, as well as a second document allowing their baby to go to America. Many of these mom's signatures were forged and some of them were handed papers and just told to sign. Keep in mind, these moms oftentimes were young girls, teenagers, not even, not even adults yet, under the guidance of this mother and baby home. Take Teresa O'Sullivan's mom, for example. She was 17 years old when she was in the mother and baby home, forced to give her child up for adoption. Teresa was born in 1957, and she did get documents pertaining to her adoption. And a lot of it is redacted, it's blacked out, and she can't read all of it. She sees multiple parts where her mom's signatures don't add up, and all the documents just don't make sense. The two speakers I saw at CrimeCon, Michael and Kathy, who were survivors of this home, were also adopted out. Kathy's parents kept a lot of keepsakes and records from her adoption. Her parents were Harry and Fran, and they had letters from the Bon Secours nuns asking if they wanted a girl or a boy, asking them multiple questions about the child they would want. But that wasn't really their concern. They just simply wanted to adopt a child, girl or boy. They weren't able to have kids of their own at this point, and they were ready to be parents. Once Kathy really started looking into her adoption, her husband Andrew helped her research where she really came from. Her parents had this letter from the nuns stating that they had 170 kids in the home, but there was this epidemic and lots of the kids were dying. However, they explained that they do have a little girl who has blue eyes and the mom will sign the papers. Kathy's husband Andrew finds this strange that they said she will sign the papers. There's no question, there's no talking to the mom about approving of the family who is adopting her baby. They just simply say the papers will be signed. Kathy was adopted out of that home while the other survivor, Michael, was born in 1957 and then taken after only a couple of weeks. He then spent two years as an orphan in Dublin until 1961 when he became adopted by the state basically becoming a foster child. But soon in 1965, he was officially adopted and he lived a good life. So did Kathy. They had good parents. They were lucky. They survived at the Bon Secours home. Eventually, Michael, he did want to know where he came from. 
So in the 80s, he starts asking questions, but it's this taboo subject that no one would talk about. And in his presentation, he told us that there's not just hundreds of kids, there are thousands of children unaccounted for. Michael and Kathy explained to us that the babies who were discarded in the sewer tank or were swaddled up into a blanket before being thrown in there. And the average age was somewhere between two days and mere months old. And then Kathy, her adoption, it wasn't super quick. We know she got adopted to Harry and Fran, and she was born there in the Bon Secours home in 1956. But she ends up staying there until 1959. And the nuns kept writing to her parents, saying that the mom wouldn't sign the papers. Remember, they originally said she will, and Kathy still, to this day, doesn't know if her mom ever willingly signed those papers or if her signature was forged. All she knows is a couple months before her birth, her mom went into that home, and then like uh, many other moms had to stay the year and work. Once she was kicked out of that home, Kathy has no idea what happened from there. And Kathy's adoptive parents they said they paid a lot of money to get her, $5,000. Multiple thank you cards were sent from the nuns to Kathy's parents, thanking them for donations, thanking them for Christmas presents, thanking them for the donations for clothes. And then on the other hand, there's this letter from the Bon Secours home to the Catholic charities claiming that the mother and baby home would not be able to continue their work without the fees they receive from couples. So to the people they're adopting, they're asking for donations to care for these children, which they're not really doing. Yet on the flip side, they're calling them fees. They, they were not going to let these babies leave the home without being paid for. I believe money was a huge motive in all of this. Michael stated in his presentation that he doesn't necessarily think this is a huge Catholic church cover-up, because remember the Bon Secours home is being financed by the government, and many of the survivors feel that the government is who is involved. The government is the ones covering it up. Michael was so emotional during his talk, and he cried as he explained that those moms and babies were treated so horrifically and that the government allowed this to happen. I mean, both Ireland and America had to know these babies were being illegally adopted, right? They had to have passports to come between countries, I would assume. And these adoptions also trace back to 1950. And adoption wasn't even legal there in Ireland until 1952. Yet they are sending kids on airplanes with passports to America. Michael believes this is why the government is being so slow on giving answers. And this is why they're trying to brush it under the rug because they allowed this large scale trafficking scheme to happen. Kathy went on to say that many people don't believe the story, but quote, it happened and it's true. People don't think it's true, but it is, end quote. So they need you to spread the story. They need you to put the pressure on Ireland to give the survivors and families answers. They state that Ireland cares a lot about what people in America are saying. So if we can put the pressure on them over there to know that we know what you did, that we want answers, 
and that what happened was not okay? Maybe they will finally treat the former Bon Secours mother and baby home as a crime scene and start a criminal investigation, including a full excavation to determine how many baby's remains are in the sewer. And with that, they can go on to look for the remaining children in other graves or in other homes outside of Ireland. Children who grew up not even knowing where they came from. was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. You can find us on Instagram at True Crime Expod, TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast, Twitter at True Crime Exposed, and Facebook at True Crime Exposed Podcast. Visit our website, www.truecrimeexposedpodcast.com. And if you have any suggestions, critiques, anything you just want to talk, DM me or email us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and I am going to be talking about Ireland. This is my palate cleanser. Did you know Ireland has something in common with Idaho? Idaho is the potato state. We are known for all our potatoes. Well, guess what? The first potato ever planted was in Ireland. I, Ireland. So Ireland, I, I guess we're pretty similar. Bye. Have a great day. Oh, wait. My sister has to say bye. Say bye. Oh. If you visit worldhope.org, you're going to find a great organization you can get involved with. You can donate, you can view their work, you can sponsor a child, you can get involved, you can see their employment, their team, and their contacts. Now, the World Hope Organization is a Christian relief and development organization working with vulnerable and exploited communities to alleviate poverty, suffering, and injustice. Their core values are transformation, sustainability, empowerment, and collaboration. I highly encourage you to visit these websites when you hear them at the end of our episodes. Even if you can't donate, even if you can't get involved, just go support them as best as you can. Check them out. And if you feel so inclined, donate, get involved, and do what you can to give back to the world a little as we listen to these stories of injustice and tragic stories that are heartbreaking. I think the least we can do is give back a little and try to fight any wrongdoing in our world. 